Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. You all are fewer than usual uh, because of apocalyptic rain. Uh, I'm not sure all that happened in the last few hours, but uh, we walked out the front of our house and a potted tree that's bigger than you could think would be turned over was turned over and we hear trees are down around, so uh, folks may be a little hindered from getting here, but we're very glad to see you. And we're going to continue to study God's Word, thankful for a dry place in, uh, in which to do it. So let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful that you have given us the entirety of the Holy Scriptures. Father, as we study this one passage, we pray that you will bless the study of your Word. Open our eyes that we may see and apply this Word to our hearts, that we would be conformed to the image of Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last week when we were together, we were looking at Titus chapter 3 and this amazing passage because it, uh, it includes twists and turns we just don't expect. And one of these passages that by apostolic correction is actually very, very sweet. So much of what we find in the New Testament is about how we are to live in the church. And uh, that's for good reason because this is... This is this is what we have. This is often referred to uh, in church history, the New Testament, as the church book. Because if you want to know what the church is, what the church is to believe, uh, who comprises the church, who's Lord over the church, how the church is to deal with issues, what the church is to do in worship, the New Testament is the church book. But it's also the church in the world book. And that becomes very clear in the passage that we've been considering. Paul here is writing to Crete. And one background issue that we mentioned is that Crete, then as now, is notoriously uh, fractured and often violent. So the history of Crete has been a history of a great deal of turmoil and social stress. This is evidently not a new phenomenon. Let me just remind you of how Paul begins in chapter 3. Remind them that would be Christians to be submit, submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy to all people. And then here's the strange turn. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. So the Apostle Paul says, you know, here's one little clue to figuring out how to live in the world. We were once just like that. It's a bracing reminder. We were once just like the world, so what do we expect? Do we expect that non-Christians who are not united to Christ and have not experienced the new birth and are not aware of the love of Christ as we are, do we expect non-Christians to live like Christians? Do, do we expect to find the heart of Christ in those who do not know Christ? And furthermore, when you get upset with someone in the world, acting like someone in the world, remember that we were in the world we were, we were just like them. And notice the words again. We saw this last week. 
foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. You know, the, uh, the world's just a morally, morally complex place. And it, there are times you can look at the newspaper or look at a press report and think, you know, it's like we're living in the days of Noah all over again. Uh, this morning's evidence notwithstanding. The, uh, the point is, you just look at this, you go, okay, I, I just have one page of a major newspaper on Friday. And yeah, I still work with newspapers. In this case, it was the print edition of the New York Times. And then there was an article about this vast scandal of cheating that is accused in the highest echelon of chess. Now, chess is not, I think, supposed to be a contact sport. It, it, it's not intended to be a violent contest of, uh, of uh, accusations and but it, it is, there's great turmoil in the whole world of international chess. Uh, so much so that a man who's been charged of cheating by use of modern technology has offered to play the next world grand round naked. That would make headlines of a different sort. So I'm working on that and just thinking about, first of all, it's just an interesting news account. And then right next to it is about uh, the, the problems with gambling, uh, increasingly with sport. You know, who, who could have thought that could go wrong? You know, legalizing just about every aspect. And then comes the report that the University of Alabama has fired its head baseball coach for a scandal that has to do with the fact that there was an enormous amount of betting activity against Alabama. And it was traced to one particular betting source. This tells you something about our surveillance society. So the head baseball coach of Alabama is out because when they trace the source, they trace the source of the bets against Alabama to a phone call with the head coach of Alabama. Turns out that's not good. And he was instantly fired. Now, again, at this point, you have to say accusations. They're unproven in court. But nonetheless, that was the data provided. Uh, you know, I just, it, it, you just have to wonder, how, how does it feel if you're a young man on that team when you find out someone's betting against you, put a big bet against you, it's your coach. This is one of those things. You look at this, you go, this is the world. This is just a messed up place. And then you look at this, everything else, this is a messed up place. And you look at this list that the Apostle Paul gives, and you go, yeah, there's full evidence of that. But Paul doesn't let Christians be haughty about this or condescending, because, but for Christ, who do you think we are? All right. One of the things we noticed last week is that the Apostle Paul often does this contrast uh, especially using what in translation becomes the English conjunction, but, but, but God, famously in Ephesians. But here it's, it's, but when, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, this is the gospel, Christ, 
He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, which He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So here's this beautiful summary of the gospel. It just, it just comes in a but now, just to remember what the gospel is. You were just like, we were just like the world until we came to know Christ, but the gospel did come, and, and this is the eternity-changing consequence of the gospel, and it's in a summary of how the gospel works. Beautiful language, when the grace of God, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. Then just notice again the determinative language. He saved us. So it's not we found salvation in Him. It's not that we, we found our way to believe in Him. This is all His action. He saved us. Unless we miss the point, it's not based on any works done by us in righteousness. It's His own mercy. Mercy demonstrated in the washing of regeneration, which is an interesting way to put it, because regeneration's new birth. That's the born again, regeneration. Here it's described as the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. All this beautiful, beautiful language. One of the things you have to note is that if you're not shocked by that language, it's because you're already trained by the Apostle Paul and the New Testament to anticipate that kind of language. Um, the English language is perfectly capable of this kind of sentence. But it's also true that most modern people do not now speak in this kind of English. It's a part of the, frankly, minimalization and uh, subversion of the language. But very few people speak with this many clauses and, and, and words of this power stacked up together. This is the doctrinal language of the church whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So remember, Jesus Christ our Savior is a truth claim in itself, so that being justified by His grace, one of the great Pauline themes, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You know, the physicists talk about atomic weight. There are, are certain, there's certain atomic units that weigh more than others, and there are certain sentences that weigh more than others, and here's one of those sentences that weighs a good deal more than others. The atomic weight of this passage, it's massive. And, and you'll notice it's an entire sequence. So, so once we belong to ourselves, then the goodness and loving kindness of God appeared. All the saving acts, regeneration, renewal, pouring out of the Holy Spirit took place. And the end result of this is that we have become heirs. That's an astounding statement. We've become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We have become heirs. Now, see, here, here's what's odd. That is not language that happens today as much as it happened in the past. It still happens today. So when you talk about becoming heirs, that's a little different than being an heir. And this, as I say, still fits our context. Anytime you have laws of inheritance, you have those who by right are heirs, and, and by, you might say, by nature are heirs, and then there are those who become heirs. And you know, this was particularly, I think, more true in times past without 
the internet, databases, modern communication. But there would be massive stories told of someone just going through life and then someone you know, sending a telegram and the telegram would tell them that a, a, a relative they didn't know they had has left them an inheritance and it may be four or five years after the person died because it used to take courts that long to find someone who was an heir. That's a good day, by the way. If you find out all of a sudden you're an heir of someone who's left you something and, uh, and you, you weren't the heir by what you knew was a no natural right, you're a relative and somehow... The court used to trace and say, you're the closest person. So the court would make a ruling that you are designated the heir. You receive the, the inheritance. So you didn't know you were an heir, but you were made an heir. And actually, it takes the declaration of the court to make you an heir. But the court has that power in, in, in that context to declare that you are an heir. Well, that's the way it is as we are joint heirs with Christ, we have no natural claim upon that inheritance. We have no natural claim upon the goodness and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The goodness and loving kindness of God, these things have come to us as an inheritance. The entire gospel has come to us as an inheritance, not only that we do not deserve, but we didn't know we were going to receive. So it's not just that we are heirs, we are made heirs. How many of us? All of us. The other thing is, is that in most situations of inheritance, there's shares of the inheritance. And, and that's, of course, the way fortunes work. They get dissipated over time. Generation by generation, there are more heirs and more heirs and more heirs. And so the, the, the corpus gets reduced over time. Not in the kingdom of Christ. Because the kingdom of Christ is all. To be a joint heir is to be a full heir. To be, in this case, made an heir, made a full heir. That we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy in verse 8. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. There are those who always want to try to draw or drive some kind of wedge between Paul and James. James, the half-brother of Jesus, the apostle in Jerusalem, James is very, very clear that faith without works is dead. But there is no basic argument between Paul and James. It's the sequence of the argument. Both of them are very clear that it is faith that produces a transformed life that produces works. Neither of them believe that works lead to the transformation that produces grace. Wouldn't be grace. Not the way it works. Christians need to be exhorted to good works. And we need to exhort ourselves to good works in, in a scriptural sense. Good works are the demonstration, they're the evidence of the salvation that has come. You know, uh, I'll, I'll just say this. I don't see every email that comes in the email stream for the church. I think Mary probably sees every one of them, just in case I 
miss one that I should particularly see, she brings it to my attention. I'm just thankful to be a part of a church that is calling out good works. Here's a need. Can somebody do this? Here's, a, here's an opportunity. And, and, of course, the good works to which we are called go far beyond just the life of the church. It's the life we live in the world. Uh, where Christians are, there should be evidence that Christians were there. And thankfully there is. We're deployed in the world for good works. Good works inside the church, good works out in the world through the demonstration of the transformed life. Paul's so clear about that sequence. The good works don't show up until salvation is accomplished. But once salvation is accomplished, we have work to do. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But then... And here's where we need to spend a little bit of new attention. Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. All right, you've got to love a pastor who says, okay, I don't have that much time. This is going to be brief. Be sweet. Here's the gospel. It better show. Here's the depth of the gospel. All these words and clauses piled up in such a glorious way in which the summary of the gospel is declared. And then do good works. Be absolutely insistent on telling the church they should be doing good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. There's another but. The, the last but was a theological statement where we are told about the gospel. But now, but now we look at this as instead, this is corrective. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. So here we have several things that are to be avoided, and some of this is Crete. Some of this is Crete. Some of this is Crete in the first century. All of it applies to Christians everywhere until Jesus comes. Certainly, when you look at the first word that is here, avoid foolish controversies. Now, I don't, I don't know. I don't know of an age in which foolish controversies have been quite as possible as in our own age. If you want to track all the foolish controversies on social media you're going to lose your job because that's a full-time thing and you won't be able to keep up. Foolish controversies are not new. Now, what makes a foolish controversy? It, it's not so much the fact that fools are in it. That would be a different way of putting it. It's just that the issue of controversy is foolish. There's an awful lot of energy spent in controversies that are either framed in such a way that they're not honest or they're about something that's not really consequential. Just, just avoid it. And, and in the church, this can happen. You can have controversies over truly stupid stuff in church. And a part of what makes those particularly hot is people think they're bringing a spiritual rationale to an argument about stupid stuff. The SBC Historical Library and Archive and I serve as president of that overarching agency as well. 
we've got the minutes of all these associations and churches going back well into the 18th century. And this is back when you have this beautiful script, beautiful script, and there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of pages. This beautiful script of some associational clerk who kept the records. And the controversies are irritating and hilarious. What churches have argued about, sometimes what churches have split about. There's an association in Alabama, I believe it is, in which there is New Harmony Baptist Church, and then a couple miles down the road, there's New Harmony Baptist Church number two. Even newer harmony. You just look at this and you recognize that this is what happens if things get out of hand. Now, if there has to be a division over truth and doctrine, that's what the Reformation was about. That's what the early church was about. The Apostle Paul will sever relationships with people if they are the enemies of the gospel or if they show themselves to be uh, agents of disunity in the church. But he also recognizes, you know, just make sure this is really worth arguing Make sure this is really worth this time. Be sure it's really urgent in this case to risk division in the congregation. Apostle Paul is very clear about these just foolish controversies. And, and, you know, this is very similar. If you look at this list, most of these things are found also in his correspondence with Timothy in the same exact words. So evidently, again, he's, he says he has these two sons in the ministry, one Timothy, one Titus. He sends them out on these apostolic missions, and it turns out that regardless of where these young men go, there are perpetual problems. Foolish controversies, very much on the list. Then notice what comes next. Genealogies. Again, shows up more than once. What is going on here? You know, there's a sense in which I think the best analogy to this is astrology. And, and you, have, you have people who are attracted to such things the idea in the ancient world was that genealogies could be traced back to a spirit world. And it is very much like astrology in that it's just not helpful. Now, astrology is not all based on nothing. There are heavenly bodies up there. There are objective metaphysical realities. Um, but, uh, but the the occultness of the focus on the entire system that's supposedly based upon birth and all the rest, again, something that the New Testament condemns. The Old Testament, too, in terms of sorcery and all the rest. But when it comes to genealogies, it's very similar. And, and again, you say, well, that's not a particularly contested issue among us. We'll be thankful. Just, just be thankful that this one may have been something of a passing phase. But the, the pattern is still there. People trying to find massive interest and meaning outside of the Scriptures. Dissensions, that's easy enough to understand. Quarrels about the law. Okay, just remind, remind yourself that that's how we got into this letter in the first place. So it is kind of interesting. The Apostle Paul just puts quarrels about the law as one of these things to be avoided because it's the very thing that brought Titus to Crete. Remember? It was controversy about the law. That's why he sent Titus, his uncircumcised son, just to make very clear about the fact that the law does not now bind. And by that, 
the, the religious ceremonial law. And, and here you're just told just avoid all these arguments about the law. And now here, here, here is where we have the danger that when we look at the genealogies, you can say, well, just, I, we've never had a decent argument in this church over genealogies. We're not good at that. Uh, but you could similarly say, well, these arguments about the law, you know, we're, we're distant from Israel now. We, we, we don't have the problem of Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians in the church with questions to the cost of the gospel about the application of the law. And yet, I'm going to argue, you look through Christian history, we often do. We, we often do become legalists. Or at least, we run the risk of it. Now, of course, the Apostle Paul would say, you run the risk of it both ways. Of acting as if there is no law, as in moral law, or in making issues that aren't of the law, matters of the law. You can see this in a lot of churches. Uh, you can see it in, uh, you can see it surely in church history. Sometimes you come to a juncture in church history and you say, this is over truth. The true church is going to go here. And what goes the other direction is a false church. Then in other cases, you look at it and you say, you know, this is not an issue over which there has to be division. And sometimes there's division, and you don't anathematize one another. It's just, it's different. The way I'd put it is this way. You have a gospel Presbyterian church. I'm very thankful for that gospel Presbyterian church. I have so many wonderful gospel Presbyterian friends, but not one of them is a member of Third Avenue Baptist Church because we hold the different understandings of baptism and babies in particular. There's more to it than that, but that's, a, that, that's, a, that's the biggest dividing point. We don't say they're a false church. We just say that's a different congregation. For now, till Jesus comes and glorifies us and all things are made well in the kingdom of Christ, we're all part of his church. But you know what? I can't say that about the Jehovah's Witnesses. I certainly don't say that about the, uh, the Unitarians down the street. And they really are down the street probably four of them, but they're down the street. You know, we passed the Christian Science Building, you know, coming in. Again, I don't know how many are left there. Uh, but you just look at that and you realize, no, we, we're, we, we're, we're not a part of anything that is in commonality with them. And that's worth splitting over. But uh, when I was a, a college student, uh, and I was just starting to look at the magazine Christianity Today, uh, and uh, so this would have been in the, the late 1970s. And Christianity Today was then kind of the flagship evangelical magazine. And it, it was a way to, to just get to know a whole lot of things. And there was no internet, so this is the way you get to know a whole lot of things about the evangelical world. You're not going to know any other way. But it also had cartoons back then. And it was by one guy, he was very good. And I cut one of them out of the magazine and put it up on my dorm room door. And I still got it. There aren't that many papers pieces of paper that I taped on my college dorm room door I still have. This is one of them. Snowball guy standing up, and he's clearly standing in, in, in the area. He's been sitting in a pew. He's standing up, and he says, <laughs> I just received a word from the Lord, and he hates drums. And uh, 
in the late 1970s, I have to tell you that was very relevant because he had a lot of churches that were having drums for the first time. And here's this old guy, he's got a word from the Lord, God hates drums. And uh, you look at that and you go, well, this, this, could, be a, this could be a real argument. Uh, and, and it only became a cartoon and it was only funny because it was an argument. All right. There's certain things worth arguing about. And by the way, church music is not something that's, to use the, uh, the Latin term, adiaphorus. It's, it's, it, 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 it's, it's, or the, uh, even the Greek root, adiaphorus. It's not a thing indifferent. Uh, but it's, uh, it's the kind of thing that you can have the wrong kind of argument about. Okay. And we're told that these particular things we are to avoid are unprofitable, and worthless. So here's something else. Those aren't the strongest words of condemnation the Apostle Paul will utter. So these are bad things to avoid. These are bad things to avoid, but, but Paul's condemnation of them might not be as strong as you might think. And I, and I think it's really helpful to understand that the Apostle Paul here is telling us there are things worth excluding people for. We're getting there. But there are other things you try to deal with with people through. Now, that wasn't, the English grammarian in me doesn't like that sentence, but you get it. You, you, there are certain things that are not good, but you work with people. You, you, you don't immediately sever relationships with people over these things. There are other things in which you do. And the Apostle Paul moves to that. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. So some of those things are divisive, and Paul says they're, they're, they're worthless, they're unprofitable. Don't, don't have anything to do with them. But there's a stronger judgment against someone who is himself or herself an agent of divisiveness in the church. And you'll notice the Apostle Paul is very specific. He says, once you have warned them once, and then twice have nothing more to do with them. Now, there are areas in which there's some questions about how to handle things in church discipline. I think it's really important we recognize that being divisive is identified by the Apostle Paul as so dispositive that if you're warned once and you're warned twice and you're divisive, you're just severed. Because the church can't survive. A congregation can't survive someone who is, by character, divisive. And I think you probably have at least someone in mind, and hopefully not in the church. But I can tell you, if you have an extended family of any size then you know exactly what I'm talking about. Everything changes when Hazel shows up or Harry. It's just everything changes because you've gone from unity and harmony to division. Now, family's a little harder to deal with in one sense because you don't exactly have the opportunity to have a family meeting, in which case on the recommendation of the family elders, you sever the relationship, but you're tempted. But in the church, there is such a structure. 
And once a person, and, and remember, this is not just one person saying another person is quarrelsome. That's not, not what's going on here. Apostle Paul here, we're quite certain of speaking congregationally. If in the view of the congregation, a person is divisive and has been warned once and then twice and is still divisive, just don't have anything more to do with him. This is like a situation in which the more you engage a truly divisive person, the more division happens just, just by engaging the person. So just don't. Just don't. And again, I think you know people like this. And, and you know how you could start an argument that will last all day. So just don't do it. This is a person, though. I, I think that's interesting. It just reminds us that you can have a harmonious congregation, just like you can have a harmonious family, and one person can ruin the picture. And, and that's what the Apostle Paul says you can't put up with. You, you can't have a church if someone gets away with just being an agent of division. There are certain deadly threats to the church, and that is one of them. By the way, in verse 11, there's a further statement because just in terms of the construction of the sentence, it could well have ended as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, period. So the, in English, this is actually now a run-on sentence. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Well, there you go. Warped and sinful, self-condemned. I don't know what culture you grew up in as an adolescent, but you know there are certain words that just become very much a part of the vocabulary, and uh, there's no real explanation other than pure culture as to how that word became such a fixation. And, and this is a part of Hollywood movies. You know, in, in the 60s, I, I have no idea how the word groovy came up. I was really too young to be a part of groovy. Um, I was behind that, the generation that thought the word was stupid. But it was so much a part of the culture that it was, it's in book titles, it's in poetry, it was in conversation. Uh, I will say, at least among boys, when I was growing up, I don't know why, and I don't know how widespread this was, but the derogatory term that you could use safely was warped. He is, he's so warped. That is so warped. Uh, you now, just like any other subculture like that, you just overuse a word. I don't think any of us really stopped to think much about the etymological background of warped. But you know what? If someone says that guy's warped, they have a pretty good idea there's not something right. And if the idea sounds warped, it's probably a stupid idea. It's a malformation. That's, that's basically what it is. It's a, you, you know what warp is when it comes to a piece of lumber or it comes to another material object knowing that such a person is warped, so distorted, contorted, and sinful. So it's not just, it's not just a condition, it's an act, and thus he's self-condemned. 
Well, that's the heart of, of Titus right there. I think it's one of the most powerful books in all of Scripture. It's one of the shortest books in all of Scripture. And I realize there are verses left, and we're going to turn to those. They will not take very long at all. We remind ourselves of how the Apostle Paul constructs a letter. There's an apostolic greeting, and then at the end, there's an apostolic benediction. There are final words, and there's final exhortations. There's generally a final blessing. There is a way out of the letter. You might say a conclusion. And this is how Paul then shifts. And you'll notice that this was this, was this letter to Titus, and this is this letter full of all kinds of warning. It's a letter that begins with such strong language as we saw about what's going on in this church. It's a letter that deals with the local church and how its offices are to be uh, arranged and, and, and how its work is to be arranged. It's a, it's, a, it's a book that offers such incredible direct warnings about those who are deceivers, about those who are legalists, about those who who contort the gospel and finally get down to the, they are themselves warped. There's this incredible summary of the gospel that comes in chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That is one of the most beautiful and concise summaries of the gospel found anywhere in the New Testament. That's here in this book. And then, of course, we have this, this passage about the, the fact that we're to live in the world and we, we should expect that the world will be as the world is. We're not to be as the world but we are to remember that we were just like them. But the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. Final words with great specificity about problems inside the church. And then these closing words. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Excuse me. Okay, Artemis or Tychicus? Who is Artemis? We have no idea. He's mentioned one time, here he is. But evidently the Apostle Paul is going to send someone behind Titus and he hasn't decided if it's Tychicus or Artemis and he's going to send one of them and when one of them comes, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis. That's where Paul is going to be spending the winter. Now, one of the reasons why you spent the winter somewhere, particularly in this part of the world, is because the Mediterranean is such a reality. And, and, and the transportation on the Mediterranean is extremely difficult. Things slow down in the maritime culture because of the storms on the Mediterranean in the winter. And, and furthermore, uh, and, and remember, this is the Mediterranean world, so this is not the coldest part of Europe, so we're not talking Scandinavia here. But things just slow down, and Paul is going to be spending the winter in this one place, and he wants Titus to come and see him. That's what's important. So behind Titus will be Artemis or Tychicus, and uh, once one of them arrives, whichever one it is, he wants uh, Titus to join him. 
Tychicus, by the way, is mentioned in Ephesians 6, verse 21, and Colossians chapter 4, verse 7. He's described as beloved brother and faithful minister. So another of Paul's uh, young ministers that he sends out with apostolic authority. We assume Artemis is the same. We just don't have any other interscriptural evidence about who Artemis is. Another reminder that there are all kinds of people we don't know about. There are all kinds of servants and colleagues and associates of the Apostle Paul we don't know about. There were so many leaders in the early church, we don't know them by name. But they're there. We know they're there. And it's, it's good. It's just a good reminder to us. Here's a name thrown out. Never heard of him before. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they like nothing. So it may be that Zenos the lawyer and Apollos are spending some time in Crete, but they're on their way somewhere else. And uh, this is the apostolic exhortation that it's not just Titus, but it's the church there that is to encourage Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. Both of them evidently have missions to do. And, and, and we have every reason to believe this is Apollos the preacher whom uh, fall, Paul followed in Ephesus. The Apollos who was corrected by uh, Priscilla and Aquila uh, and went on to this incredible ministry where we are told that his preaching is powerful and the Apostle Paul affirms him even after he corrects uh, some of the, the misunderstandings that have been left behind. Just a reminder, in the early church, they didn't have the scripture yet. And so the gospel is being taught mouth to mouth, voice to voice. And there are those who are filled with fervor who don't know enough yet. Remember, Apollos didn't know about the Holy Spirit. That's a huge problem. But you have this beautiful book of Acts, chapter 19, uh, correction in which uh, Priscilla and Aquila, and you look at all those chapters, just 18, 19, 20, and Priscilla and Aquila took Apollos away and corrected him privately. And he evidently was corrected biblically and, and successfully. And he's sent on as a great preacher. Zenos the lawyer, not sure who he is, but that title would indicate he's a Roman lawyer. Uh, not, a, not a Jewish lawyer that is a, a lawyer of the Old Testament law of Torah. He, he appears to be Zenos the lawyer is in the Roman profession. So he has a mission. He's a brother. They're told to bless them, hold back no good thing, send them on, see that they like nothing. And then in verse 14, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. You know, every one of the names mentioned there probably represented some level of need. Artemis and, uh, and Tychicus and Zenos and Apollos, not to mention the needs inside the church. This is something we really do understand. It's our responsibility to meet those needs. And I, again, you see that beautifully done in the life of this congregation. Here's a need, who will meet it? I love the way that that even is put. You know, here's a need, who will meet that need? What a great way for a, a congregation to be faithful and to show the love of Christ. The, uh, the implication here is, is that if we're a congregation and we know there is a need that is something that is proximate to us, we can, a, a need that presents itself to us, the question is not whether we should fill that need, but who should do it and, and how it should be done. Those situations get complicated, but the issue here is do something. And the Apostle Paul calls that a good work. 
And then we come to the final verse. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. It's just very sweet. The Apostle Paul, in his apostolic ministry, is sometimes called to do some of the hardest things, to make some of the hardest judgments, to draw the line, to deal face-to-face with those who are obstructions to the gospel. He is not reluctant as the apostle to deal with any horrible problem in the church, nor even to deal with what we would consider to be some minor things that might be might not demand the apostolic authority. The apostle Paul is like a pastor here. He just functions as a pastor. This is what he does. He's a pastor not just to one congregation, but as an apostle. He's used pastorally to so many others. And he speaks that way. His heart shows. All who are with me, and again, he's always got an entourage. And I can't say always because there are times when he says he's alone, but usually he has an entourage. And send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Just very sweet. The opening and the close of Paul's letters tend to be just incredibly sweet. As he begins in verse 4 of chapter 1, grace and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Savior. Now all who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. We've come to the conclusion and we're running out of time. But look at the last words. Grace be with you all. Grace be with you all. So sweet, grace, grace and peace, so commonly found both in the salutations from the Apostle Paul and in the conclusion. But there's something weird here. Do you see it? There's something bizarre in that sentence. It's sweet, but it's bizarre. It's just an indication that we need to remember something that we might not think of. And there it is just at the end. And as we close, you don't look shocked enough. Who are you all? This letter is addressed to a singular person. Titus, a little time bomb here at the end, just to remind ourselves of how this worked. Paul didn't send this as a private letter to Titus. It's a letter addressed to Titus, but from the very beginning, it was to be read to the church. And that's why it is in the New Testament to us, the Holy Spirit wants this letter read not only in Crete, but here. I don't know about you. I just find that to be just an incredible, heartwarming surprise at the end. It's just a a reminder that he doesn't say grace and peace to you. Instead, he says, grace be with you all. By the way, I mean you all because this letter was to be read to you all. It's addressed to Titus, but it's to the church. And by the grace and mercy of God through the Holy Spirit, it is not just for that church, but for every church till Jesus comes. Grace be with you all. All right, we're out of time. I'm so thankful for the time to study Titus with you. And uh, next time, something new.
Father, we ask that you will bless this study in such a way that we are indeed more Christ-like because we've studied this word. May all of us in this, in this room be even more faithful members of Third Avenue Baptist Church because of your exhortation to us in this word. And may we as a church always look more like the church to which you are pointing this congregation. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.